if you would, uh, bow our heads and go to the Lord and ask him to be our vision as we listen to his word. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to look at your word together as a church. I pray that you would bless our eyes that they might see, that you would bless our ears that they might hear the thing that you have spoken to us and are speaking to us from your word this morning. Please be with my mouth. May I be clear. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alrighty. Well, if you would, turn your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, and we're finishing up chapter 2 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. Now, in these verses, the Apostle Paul is clarifying, making clear something that he's been talking about, okay? You ever been talking to somebody and realize you need to stop and clarify what you mean, okay? Up to this point, Paul's been telling the Corinthians that the the things that he is teaching them about Jesus, everybody thinks they're crazy. These things I've been teaching you are foolishness. And he's also saying, listen, most of you are not brilliant people by the world's standards. There's not a lot of PhDs in your church. There's not a lot of really strong athletes in your church. You're weak by the world's standards. The world might even say you're a bunch of losers and you're gullible for accepting this foolish message. Gullible losers with a foolish message that they bought into. And last week, Paul in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 said, to top it off, you have a weak preacher who seems like a fool to the world because he won't use the world's way of being impressive and of making his message heard. So, Paul is going to clarify something here. Some of the readers of this letter might have started to wonder, wait, is the, is the message completely foolish? And if the wise of the world don't receive it with their wisdom, how can anyone receive this message? Like, if the smartest people you know are saying Christianity is crazy, maybe you've experienced this. The smart people in your life think Christianity's not worth following then if smart people think it's wrong, then who are you to think it's right? How can... How, why do you think it's right? If you can't prove them wrong. So Paul starts in with his explanation in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. I'll read that for us now. And if you would like, you can follow along in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 16. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. Ah, so we do speak wisdom 
But you have to be mature to understand it. Hmm. What does that mean? But not the wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. So not that kind of wisdom. No, we declare God's wisdom, verse 7, a mystery. You ever read a mystery novel? Who done it? What's it about? This is a mystery that they're declaring that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory, our honor, our blessing before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, understood the mystery. For if they had, they would not have killed Jesus, have crucified the Lord of glory, he says. If they understood what was going on, they wouldn't have put Jesus to death, but they did. However, verse 9, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, they couldn't get the mystery. They couldn't see the mystery. They couldn't hear the mystery. It was a mystery. The things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. Us, not a mystery anymore. The spirit reveals it to us. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? I don't know what you're thinking right now. Maybe you're thinking, what's for lunch? Okay? The, the Spirit searches all things, even... So no one, no one knows the thoughts of God except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that... We may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Now, your translation may say something different there. Translations go different ways. There's multiple ways that this could be translated. It's kind of tricky. Context is going to tell you what's right. I think the NIV gets it right here. Explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them. Because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The Spirit, the person with the Spirit of God, makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to mere human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Right. As I was going through the verses, maybe you felt as I did when I was preparing to preach this, wow, there's a lot there. Maybe you felt like that's a bit of a whirlwind. The spirit revealing a mystery, the rulers, like, what, what is going on here? This is actually really complex. It's one of the more complex sections of the letter to the Corinthians. So I'm going to do my best to try to explain it as clear as we can. And if you have any questions next week, come to sermon discussion. 
All right, can any of you put your thinking caps on? Some of you were at sermon discussion earlier, so you can you can uh, you can shout it out. I'll just say it again. Can you think of a place in the Old Testament where God reveals a mystery about the Messiah Jesus to someone by his spirit? He reveals the mystery to somebody by the spirit while all the wise men of the age are scratching their heads in bewilderment and they don't know the mystery. They can't figure it out. Daniel. Daniel, yeah. Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 2. The book of Daniel is actually shaping a lot of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, and 4. We're just going to scratch the surface here. Some of the stuff that um, I'll give Brian full credit for, for everything. Brian Brett, full credit for everything I'm about to say next. He's, he's made some of these connections, and they're, they're very helpful. To just understand some of the language Paul's using. Okay, oh, mystery. Why mystery? Well, it's from Daniel. So let's listen to this. Um, the story in Daniel. The, the ruler of the age, the king of Babylon, all right? He's the ruler of the age, the greatest ruler on earth, the king of Babylon. He has a dream, and it troubles him. What does it mean? You ever had a troubling dream? Well, back then they thought dreams, and they often were, were messages from divine beings. If you have a crazy dream, it's because God wants to tell you something. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, I want to know what the dream is. So I'm going to call together all my wise men in Babylon who work for me, and they are going to interpret the dream for me. Okay? So he calls these wise men together to interpret the dream. But there's a catch. These wise men have to tell him what his dream was. And of course, they can't reveal the dream to him. They can't do it. They don't know the mystery. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.11, who knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? Nobody knows another's thoughts and dreams. These prophets can't get the interpretation. So they're in the story, they're all about to be killed for their incompetence. Nebuchadnezzar says, obviously you don't have God on speed dial. You can't get the dream. So you're not the real deal, you wise men. I'm going to kill you. But then Daniel... A Hebrew exile, an Israelite, living in exile far from his homeland in Babylon, he says to the king that his God can help him interpret the mystery of the dream. In Daniel 2, verses 26 to 28, the king asks Daniel this, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And listen to what Daniel says. He says, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked. But, this is key, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. Which is code word in the Bible. If you've been here for our Genesis through Deuteronomy series, at the end of days is code word for the end times when Jesus comes. So the, the, the mystery being revealed is what's going to happen at the end of days. And Daniel's going to reveal it by the power of God. 
And so there, in Daniel 2, Daniel reveals the mystery to the king. In the dream, he says, there's a four-part four statue of a man called an image. It's a picture of the image of God in rebellion against God. And it symbolizes all the kingdoms of humanity in rebellion against God. And then in the dream, a rock is cut, not by human hands, and it comes from heaven, and it strikes the feet of that statue, and the statue is crushed. And then the rock grows and into a huge mountain that fills the earth. And here's what Daniel says the interpretation of this mystery is. Daniel 2, 44-45. He says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left for another people. It will crush all those kingdoms, that statue, and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So, at the heart of the mystery, that was hidden in Daniel, and then revealed to Daniel by the Spirit of God, what's at the heart of that mystery? Jesus wins, basically. The Messiah, this rock from heaven, is going to come and defeat the kingdoms of the world. How he would do that, through the cross, through sacrifice of atonement for his people's sins, we learn that later in Daniel. In Daniel 7, and the commentary on these passages in Daniel 9, which this is reaching way back to our Daniel series. Um, let's get back to Corinthians. <laughs> it is this mystery about Jesus that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians 2. The mystery of Christ and him crucified. The mystery that was hidden for ages, but now revealed a mystery none of the rulers of the age understood back then or today. They thought it was foolish, but it's not a foolish wisdom. It is the wisdom of God. And just like back then in the days of Daniel, it is revealed by the Spirit of God. So in our text today, in these verses, verses 6 to verse 16, Paul's going to set up three comparisons for us that we're going to work through. The first comparison is between those who receive God's wisdom, like Daniel did long ago, and those who don't, like the wise men of Babylon, or like the Jews and the Romans who crucified Jesus. That's verses 6 to 10. Those who get the wisdom and those who don't. Then, second half of verse 10 up to verse 13, there's a second contrast. The Spirit of God... Versus the spirit of this world. And then third, we'll see the natural person versus the spiritual person. person with the spirit versus the person who doesn't have the spirit. He's a natural person. The main point is simple. Okay, If you take nothing else from this message, because it's going to be a little bit complex as we work through some of the details. Here's the main thing, the main takeaway. God's spirit must reveal the mystery of Jesus to sinners as wisdom. God's Spirit must reveal the mystery of Jesus to sinners as wisdom. Otherwise, it ain't going to look like wisdom. It's going to look like 
a weak person getting nailed to a tree and dying. Why? Foolish. What a waste of a life. So, let's jump into the first contrast. In verses 6 to 10, those who receive this wisdom about Jesus and those who don't. Verse 6, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. It's not crazy talk, this Christianity stuff. It's a message of wisdom, but among the mature. But not the wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory, for our honor, before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by the Spirit. In verse 6, Paul explains to the Corinthian church that despite the fact that he is not a very impressive preacher by worldly standards. And despite the fact that the message he preaches seems utterly foolish to the world, and it's mostly accepted by slaves and socially low-status people, despite that, it is a message of wisdom to a certain group of people who receive it. From children... <laughs> to slaves, to anyone who receives this message, they become mature. They know something that God has revealed that grows them up. This is a really ironic thing. The traveling sophists of the day, these teachers that would roll into Corinth with their whole entourage of followers and speak these messages... They love to refer to themselves as the mature ones. When you grow up like me, you'll have the wisdom to impress the masses. Right? They were the mature. They love to call themselves the mature. They have arrived. But here Paul says the weak things of the world are mature. The simple are mature. The children are mature. The slaves, the nobodies are mature. Because they know a wisdom that none of the rulers of the age. The mystery has been revealed. The open secret has been revealed, verse 10, by God's Spirit to Christians. So all Christians who understand the mystery about Jesus and how Jesus conquers through the cross, they've had this message revealed to them by the Spirit, and they're mature in the sense that they have embraced the very wisdom of the most mature being in the universe, God himself, the God of ages. And this is contrasted in these verses with the rulers of this age who did not understand God's wisdom, but instead they crucified Jesus. In verse 9, Paul reflects a little bit more on this by pulling out his Bible and he cites some verses from the Old Testament. And he does it in a way that 
you and I don't usually do. When you quote a verse from the Bible, you probably try to like make sure you get it right. But Paul actually takes a piece of one verse and connects it with a piece of another verse because those two verses say a very similar thing. And he just quotes it like it's one thing. And he doesn't even tell you where it's found. All right? He doesn't give the reference. He just says, as the scriptures say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived. There's no verse in the Bible that says exactly that. All right? Paul does this all the time. All the New Testament authors do. Because they view scripture as speaking with one voice about Jesus. And they can pick and pull from parts of it to just make a point about one truth. And the point, it's drawn from Isaiah 64.4 and Isaiah 65.17. These two chunks. Most people agree that it's coming from there. And it's one concept that Paul is saying. One idea from these two passages. That people have not grasped the mystery about God. No eye has seen it. No ear has heard it. Which in Isaiah is a big theme. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has to go and speak a message to the people that they're going to keep on seeing but never really understand. They're going to keep on hearing but never truly grasp what's going on. You ever felt that way with somebody? I'm speaking to you, but you ain't picking up what I'm saying. Alright? You're not really listening. You're listening, but you're not hearing me. You ever, you ever have that? Like, or you're hearing me, but you're not listening to me. I mean, there's different ways of saying it. But I'm sure you've experienced that. I know my poor wife has experienced that with me. Okay. What are you thinking about? <laughs> oh, show camera photos. No. Um, but the point being, this message is a message that people have heard, but they don't get it. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind from this world has conceived. Now, Paul writes what God has prepared, what God has prepared for those who love him. You may have heard people say this refers to heaven. If you've been a Christian for a while, you may even have heard some songs that sing about no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has understood what God's prepared. And you're thinking, oh, heaven is going to be something indescribable, which is true theologically, but that's not what this verse is actually about. That's not the mystery. This is actually something no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived until the Spirit reveals it. And then you understand what God has prepared for those who love him. The mystery is now revealed through Jesus. So, there is something that's available to all, but only discernible and understandable to those who have had Jesus and the glory of the cross revealed to them by the Spirit. These things God has revealed, says Paul. So it's clear. It's not a mystery anymore. It is a open... The, the mystery of the cross, the truth about the cross, is what has been called by many an open secret. An open secret. 
What does that mean? Like, how, if it's a secret, then it can't be, oh, it's, it's available to all, but only those with eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive can understand it. In other words, it's like the phrase, my lips are going, but all I, your lips are going, but all I hear is blah, blah, blah. Right? We grow numb to it. Now, what Paul does next is expand a bit on the Spirit of God that he's just mentioned. And he introduces another contrast. The spirit of God, he says, versus the spirit of the world. What if the spirit of the world? Listen here. He says, the spirit searches all things, verse 10, even the deep things of God, the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? Who can search out the depths of your own heart? It's hard enough to do it on your own. (laughs) let alone somebody else trying to search the depths of your heart. God knows the depths. God's spirit knows the depths of his own heart. And in the same way, you know, a person alone can understand their own thoughts. In the same way, Paul says, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And then verse 12, he says something amazing. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, not that spirit. We'll talk about that spirit. Who is that spirit? But the Spirit who is from God. So that, with the purpose, we might understand what God has really given us. In context, that's the depths of God. The mystery that's now revealed about Jesus, the Son of God. This is what we speak, says Paul. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. So, the contrast is between the Spirit of God versus the Spirit of this world. It's very clear in verse 12. Paul's saying, the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God, and so he's able to reveal to humans what God is thinking. It doesn't matter how close you are to someone, you, you're never going to know everything they, they're thinking. We can try to communicate our thoughts to other people, But it's really challenging sometimes to communicate exactly what you're thinking. But Paul says, we have received the Spirit of God so that we can understand what God has freely given us through Jesus. We can understand God's mystery that is now revealed about Christ. And so... Paul says in verse 13 that he and the preachers with him speak words not taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Now this, you've got to understand this in context. This doesn't mean that the Apostle Paul has this walkie-talkie type conversation going on with God at all times, where He's got a walkie-talkie on earth, and God's got a walkie-talkie in heaven, and God's Spirit is constantly, miraculously communicating to Paul as he wait, as he's going out his, on his daily life. You know, Paul's like, whoa, pause, incoming, incoming. What, what next, Lord? Um, oh, God wants us to do this. That's not what's going on here. In context, these Spirit-taught truths that Paul is preaching is the Spirit, is something very concrete, specific. It's not just random 
text messages that he keeps getting from God or whatever. It's something specific. It is the mystery, the preaching of the, the spirit-revealed mystery of the cross of Jesus and the wisdom of God found there. What happened at the cross is a clear fact in history. Something that really happened. Most people, Christian and non-Christian, agree today that Jesus really lived and died and was crucified. They disagree about the resurrection, but the, the cross, it happened. The power and the significance of the cross and the wisdom of the cross and what's going on there and what that means for you, that can only be seen by those who are being saved. So as Paul writes earlier in his letter, chapter 1, verses 22 to 24, listen to this. This will maybe help clear things up. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. The mysterious wisdom of God that the Spirit reveals to the mature is the mystery of Christ crucified. Before we move on, there's one other thing we need to touch on briefly. If the Spirit of God reveals the mystery about Jesus to Jesus' people, to those whom God has called, then who is the Spirit of the world? Who do you think the Spirit of the world is? <clears throat> who do you think Paul would say it is? Shout it out. Say, yeah. Paul believes in a powerful spiritual being who sought in the Garden of Eden to seek to get humans to grasp for wisdom. Eve looked at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it looked desirous for becoming wise. And so she sought to get wisdom by disobeying God. What would you tell your kids? If they disobeyed you, would you say, yeah, that's the path of wisdom. You do you, son. No. That's what's going on here. Adam and Eve decided, I'm going to do me. I'm going to choose what looks good for me and what looks evil for me. And I'm going to do it apart from the wisdom of God. That's what the tree symbolizes in the garden. Human bid for autonomy, for independence from God. We're going to, it's Independence Day. Take and eat. And the rebellion began. Led by the spirit of this age where Paul, Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, 1 to 2. This affects everybody, he says. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The spirit of this world, the devil, Satan, he has a wisdom that every single human being born into this planet adopts naturally. It's the wisdom of the world. 
and of the rulers of this world. It's a wisdom that says weakness is bad and should be avoided. Strength and power is the way to success and happiness. It's a, weak, it's a wisdom that says survival of the fittest. The strong live, the weak die. It's a wisdom that says look out for you and look out for your family and your tribe at the cost of others. It's a wisdom that says that the way to respond to evil and injustice is anger and rage. The way to treat your enemies is to hurt them. The way to stop terrorism is terrible strength. This is all the complete opposite of the wisdom of the cross of Jesus. And only the spirit of Jesus can open eyes and hearts to see and to receive this and start to live this radical way. And so all humanity is seen by the Bible and by the Apostle Paul as being divided into two groups. The natural person and the spiritual person. The person who follows the wisdom of the world and the person who follows the wisdom of the Spirit of God. And this is the third contrast. The natural person versus the spiritual person. Look at verses 14 to 16. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Several things that we should cover in these verses. Have you ever told someone you love about Jesus? Someone you love. You told them about Jesus. And they're just not buying it. It just seems foolish to them. Maybe you told someone else about Jesus and they actually accepted it intellectually. They said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. But they didn't really follow him. Or at least not yet. It didn't seem to affect their life. It's because really actually following him, like actually being a Christ follower seemed foolish. Like, I intellectually agree, but I ain't going to be all in on this. Because that's crazy. I want to keep some of what I love about my old life, but pick and choose still. I still want to be in control of this thing. I don't want to go crazy and give Jesus full control. And then maybe there's some others that you've told about Jesus and they followed him and they were all in. What's the difference? Is it intelligence? Smartness? Is it intellectual ability? Or is it natural ability? Like really talented people follow Jesus? What makes the difference, friends, according to this passage, between somebody who decides to follow Jesus with all their heart, they're just all in, they love him, and then somebody who's just interested in, in the facts about him. It's just a head thing. Or they just completely reject him. The difference is the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit of God can go inside and work within to open our eyes to see on a spiritual level and open our ears to hear on a spiritual level who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. As Jesus said in Matthew 11, Blessed are your ears because they hear. Blessed are your eyes because they see. 
Only the Spirit can reveal Jesus as attractive so that we say, yes, I want that. Yes, I need that. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will satisfy me eternally. Only the Spirit can convince someone to spend their life living for Jesus. Only the Spirit can say, no, it's not foolish to lose your life for what you can't keep, as Jim Elliott said, so you can gain what you can never lose. Resurrection life. It's not foolish. I'll say the quote. He said, Jim Elliott gave his life to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. He wrote this. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, his life, to gain what he cannot lose. The second thing to look at here is found in verse 15. There we read a verse that has been terribly abused over the years. This is important that we try to wrestle with this passage. Listen to these words. Verse 15. Your translation might say something slightly different, but here's the gist of it. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. So again, Paul's still contrasting people with the Spirit and people who have the Spirit of the world. The natural person. And he says, the person with the Spirit, somebody who's mature, who has the Spirit, a Christian, they make judgments about all things. But, and such a person is not subject to mere human judgments. What does Paul mean? Some Christians have wrapped their arms around this statement all the way, and they've used it to isolate themselves from criticism from other people. I'm a spiritual person. You are not. There's a religious tradition um, that calls uh, the, the preacher the man of God. And he is the man of God in a sense where other people are not the men of God, right? And he is the man of God, and you don't say anything, judge, don't judge the man of God, because he is the spiritual person. And you don't want to say anything, any judgment about the man of God. That's a great way to protect yourself from all sorts of abuses, abusive charges, right? You can't judge me, but I can judge you. You can't judge me. These verses can be used by all sorts of Christians, not just preachers, but trying to manipulate people to get their way. We have to pay attention to the whole context of these verses if we're going to understand what Paul's saying here. In the context, the spiritual man, the spiritual person, isn't just some unique category of Christian. Like, Whoa. Those are the mature spiritual ones. They really got it together. And then there's the rest of us. That's not what Paul's saying here. He will say later on that the Christians are the Christians in Corinth are not acting like they have the spirit. They're acting like just like the world, and Christians can do that. Tragically. But what Paul's saying is that. Here, these all Christians have the Spirit. 
All Christians are the spiritual people here. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians 6. You're, you're, we're the temple of God. His spirit dwells in our midst. So when Paul says that the spiritual man makes judgments about all things, he's saying Christians who have the spirit are able to judge things. What do things mean in context? Does Paul mean that Christians can judge the different calculations needed to launch a spaceship? And that nobody can judge their calculations. They can just, you know, judge it. I can work for SpaceX tomorrow because I got the Spirit of God. And I can launch people into space. Is that? And don't judge what I say. If I say push that button, we go. Whoa, 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 not ready. Nope, nope, don't judge me. I'm a man of God. I got the walkie-talkie. I got the spirit. I can make judgments about all things. And I say, we're making an addition on this building. God told me that we need to be the biggest church in Granville. Incoming. Yes, Lord. Okay, yep. This can be so abused. I hope, I hope you see this. Like, and you can't judge me. You can't say it. The man of God says... We're going we're gonna to do this. We're going to do that. No. That's not what Paul's saying here. Or, move aside, Carl. I got this surgery. Because I got the spirit. When, 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 when he says we cannot be judged by human judgment, it can't mean that unbelievers or Christians can't tell us when they're wrong. All things cannot possibly mean that Christians with the spirit have, to, have the ability to make authority authoritative judgments about every little fact in creation and never be wrong. What this verse means, I think, is that as a Christian man who has the Holy Spirit in my life, I understand and know deep in my heart I can make a proper judgment about all things related to life and godliness and following Jesus. I know in my heart that Jesus is beautiful. His forgiveness is amazing and worth singing about. This is spiritually discerned. I can know from experience and from conviction from the Holy Spirit that sin and selfishness in my life is miserable and wrong. And I can make judgments about good and evil, sin and righteousness, about the ways both of the Spirit of the world and the ways of the Spirit of God. I can judge all things. Because I've tasted both. I've tasted the ways of the world. The flesh, the devil. And I've also tasted that Jesus is better. That's something that someone without the Spirit cannot say. They have not tasted that Jesus is better. Yet. So they cannot make judgments upon what someone with the Spirit has tasted and seen. They have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Paul concludes with this. The last few words I'll just point out. He says, we have the mind of Christ. Verse 16. That means that Christ has become for us as Christians wisdom from God by his spirit in our hearts. We Christians, true Christians, seek to think like Jesus. And to think about Jesus. To think like Jesus about sin. And about all things. We have the mind of Christ. So 
So we'll conclude as we began. The main point in these verses is that God's Spirit must reveal the mystery about Jesus to sinners as wisdom. Though the message may appear as complete crazy talk to the world, when the Holy Spirit turns the lights on for someone, they see Jesus suddenly appears attractive. Embracing him, following him seems right. Following him with everything seems wise. So I ask you, do you know Jesus? Has your heart been opened to the beauty of who he is? Do you feel deep down your need of him every day? Of his forgiveness? Of the hope that he gives? If your answer is no, or even I'm not sure, the first thing I'd encourage you to do is plead with the Lord. Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Help me to see. Maybe your heart has grown numb to Jesus, to the beauty of who he is. By years of just listening to religious words, pass over you. You don't truly know. You don't have that affection in your heart that I love Jesus. I want to follow him. Ask him. As Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he's called you to. Know the depth of the love of Christ. So if your answer is no, pray. Ask God to open your eyes. Come talk to me afterwards. Talk to Carl. Ask us, and we will pray for you to do what only the Spirit can do. For those who do know Jesus, which I I know is most of us here, really we do have a relationship with Jesus. Here's a few final thoughts. Know this. The wisdom of the world is not the wisdom of God. The church in Corinth was a sick church. And the reason they were a sick church and they had a problem is because they were really, they were infected with a cancer. Worldliness. Worldly thinking. Even though they had the Spirit, they were acting like they didn't. Because all of our danger as Christians. And like them, we're in danger of drowning in the wisdom of the world. It's all around us. You think about this. When you watch a movie and everything in you wants to just smash the human who is the bad guy in the movie. That's worldly wisdom. Seeping in. Slowly. Seductively. The wisdom of the cross shows how we we stop evil. God absorbs it into himself. He doesn't perpetuate the cycle of violence. He takes it. He forgives it. So we want to, as Christians, not just absorb the way the world views things. We want to assess rightly through the lens of the cross. How does God deal with evil? When you're led to believe that angry words and shouting and displays of power and strength will help a situation get better, will bring peace to a situation, you're following the wisdom of the world and the spirit of this world. There is a better way. Repay evil with good. I mean, a Sermon on the Mount is filled with this, right? Repay evil with good. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Speak gently with those who come against you. This is the wisdom of the cross, the way of Jesus. When you and I are led to believe we should hide our weakness from other people and to put on a strong, brave front to the world, this is the wisdom of the world. God's resurrection power showed up in Jesus' life when he gave everything else, everything up. 
And in the same way, when we are emptied of our strength and when we appear weak, that's when God's power shows up in our lives. When we don't know what to do, that's when God comes through for us with his wisdom. Put his power on display. When we're led to believe, you ever, you ever heard the expression YOLO? You only live once. YOLO? I'm going to YOLO it. You only live once! It's worldly wisdom. Put all your chips in achieving your dreams in this life because you only live once. No, only through the wisdom of Christ and his cross can we see that we were given this life so that we might spend it investing in retirement in a new creation. Everything we've saved up in this life can be gone in an instant. All our hopes, all our dreams, treasures in this life are fleeting, fading. Here today, gone tomorrow, just like we are. But our reward in heaven from Jesus is worth investing our time and money and strength in for his kingdom work will endure. And you can do the work of the kingdom whether in whatever situation you find yourself in. Live like Jesus is king at work, at home, in public, in all your relationships. And only the Spirit can help you to continue to grow in that, right? To, to, to apply in your life what the kingship, what the lordship of Jesus means in any given situation. We do speak a wisdom, says Paul. It's not the wisdom of this world. So Christians, as we close, be on the lookout for wisdom of the world that's trying to seep into your life. And replace it with the wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of the man who hung for our sins, crying out, as Carl reminded us earlier, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be with me, be with all of us. Pray that our minds and hearts would be continually shaped by the wisdom of the cross. May we not be like the church at Corinth that had drifted, but may we return to the wisdom of Christ. Lord, stir our hearts up, I pray, with love for you, with a desire to live for you. If anyone today doesn't know you, I pray that you make that clear to them that they would, for the first time, have their eyes and their ears opened to the beauty of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name.